The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to Sex Labs, the New York Magazine sex podcast. I'm David Wallace-Wells and with me are Maureen O'Connor, New York sex columnist, and Allison Davis of The Cut. Hey guys. Hey. On this episode, we're going to be talking about couples therapy, but like really early couples therapy for really young people who have plenty of time to find other people and no reason not to. Um, We're going to also be talking about the incredible poetic power of the eggplant emoji, which is both sort of disgusting as a stand-in for a penis and also maybe the greatest emoji ever made. And we're also going to be talking about air sex, which is um, air guitar for fucking. So on to our first topic, which is couples therapy. Maureen, this week in the magazine, you've got a great column about this weird phenomenon, which is super young people really early in their relationships rushing into couples therapy, which mm-hmm. I think seemed pretty insane to you and totally seemed insane to me too. But I wanted to ask first, um, like, why would someone go into therapy after a couple of dates? Like, what what kind of person would do that? And what the hell are they hoping to accomplish? You know, I think I went into this story. This is one of those classic stories that I went into it being like, this is crazy. Why would they do this? And I was completely 180. Like my skepticism. You're now gone. in couples therapy. Yeah, I am now. I am now. Um, I was only like, I hope I can find somebody to go to couples therapy with after doing this. Um, I think that one interesting thing was so I was speaking to people who had started um couples therapy early on either I mean at first just the notion of people doing it before marriage you sort of heard of like premarital couples counseling which people do when they're like in the ramp up to getting married but I started hearing about people doing it when marriage wasn't even on the table yet and one there was um, in an interview between Kristen Bell and Dak Shepard and Good Housekeeping where they said the secret to our marriage is that as soon as we start dating right away we started going to couples therapy with each other and they talk about the idea that learning how to communicate learning how to fight effectively um, I heard about people who said well well, I know, you know, I want to figure out whether or not this is actually compatible, whether the problems we're having are ones we can fix or not. And one thing I kept on hearing again and again, because a lot of these were usually young people who were doing this. Some of them were people who had maybe like done couples therapy, divorced, were going into like a second relationship. and they're, But it was oftentimes people who said, I did therapy when I was a kid or I did family therapy as a kid or in my last relationship and people that are sort of used to using therapy as a tool in the process of learning how to relate to people or in the process of processing emotions. And once I sort of put it in that context, it sort of started making sense to me that if you're used to using this thing as a tool in your emotional life, why wouldn't you? One therapist pointed out to me that she's like, well, when I do individual therapy, I spend like 80% of it, people come in all by themselves and talk about their relationships with their boss, with their significant other, with their mother, with all of this. So why wouldn't you bring that person in with you at some point and do it with the real context? Yeah, but right at the start? I don't know. No. Allison, like, does this make you feel like Dak Shepard and what, who's his wife? Or Kristen Bell. That their relationship is like rock solid or are you like, these people should not be together? <laughs> I just, you know, I think... From everything, I've, I know them so intimately, but it seems like their relationship is pretty rock solid, and maybe that's because they went to couples therapy early. But I just, like, a few things occurred to me is, A, by date two or date three, are people really going that early? Because I'm not even sure most of the time that I would want to, like, sleep with a person at that point or right. get another drink with them. So how are you supposed to determine, like, this relationship is worthwhile enough for me to go to couples therapy, which is an investment both financially and time-wise and emotionally because you're really airing a lot of stuff out there at the outset. And also, like, you don't know each other that well. So aren't you going to scare somebody off with, like, all of your, 
you know, issues mm-hmm. from when you're eight years old and how that's going to affect <laughs> you in a relationship. Like, it just seems like too much too soon. And can you imagine, like, screwing someone for the first time thinking, like, we're going to be talking about this tomorrow in the therapist's <laughs> office? <laughs> just take some of the fun out of, like, what's yeah. great about being in a relationship with someone, which is they're a mystery to you. Right. You know? Well, I think across the board, all of the therapists said, you know, you don't want to just get to know someone for the first time in the therapist's office. You know, that's not like your first date activity, like getting to know you with a mediator. Um, although they were all kind of like, I wouldn't stop someone if they wanted to. But um, It would be most pretty them, interesting to be the therapist in that situation. Oh, I know. Yeah. Also, I was like, can I bring my first dates to you? <laughs> um, they're like, we won't stop you. Does your insurance cover me? But... Um, what I think most of them are like, once you're already exclusive with someone, once there's enough commitment that you're affecting each other's emotional lives and you're, you know, a significant part of each other, like you're putting in some work. That was, I think, the moment when they were like, sure, why not? Um, and I do still have sort of mixed feelings about it that on one hand, you would think, well, first of all, there's the idea that like if if you're early enough that you can cut your losses, maybe you should just look for something easier and more fun. Um, one of the people I interviewed was saying... At the end of a three-year relationship, she did nine months of couples therapy with that guy, broke up with him. Very soon thereafter, met the guy she would eventually marry. And then she was like, geez, like, I can't believe I spent nine months. I mean, that's like a significant portion of, given how long the relationship was, sort of like in this state of misery, slowly, slowly breaking up when I could have just started the next relationship and, you know, I could have rebounded faster. And then I met a guy that I never had to spend time miserable with, you know, that she was sort of torturing herself that way. So there's one hand, this idea of this sort of like prolonged breakup, that instead of just cutting it off, you sort of need somebody to sanction it and check off all the boxes that you tried everything you could. It's not our fault that it failed. You know, we had an authority figure tell us it was OK to stop. But why do people have such a hard time breaking up if they're unhappy? What's that about? Like, why do they need to, like, have the help of a therapist? That's a great question that I am in no place to answer. <laughs> Haven't figured that out yet. Or on the other hand, is it like people, um, they want, they, one way that they show their commitment to somebody is by like sort of mm-hmm. performing how miserable they are. They're like, w- like I'm committed to you there. I'm, you know, the way sad I. Sad for you. Yeah. Committed to my misery. We're going to go in and talk about everything that's wrong. But, you know, I also read uh, a while back about um, a theory of like how many sessions people should expect to be in therapy unless right. they have like a real mental disorder that needs help is that, you know, after like maybe max six to 12 sessions, like, you know what the problem is and you Mm -hmm. know what the way out of the problem is. So like nine months seems like an incredibly long time to like be breaking up with a therapist when you know, A, you're going in there because this relationship's about Mm -hmm. to end and they can kind of tell you quickly that it should end um, if they're listening. I mean, I've seen a lot of like a lot of my friends relationships break up in therapy and like I knew it from the outset as soon as they started going. I was like, oh, this is marriage is well, like totally the over. The people who go to therapy and stay together don't usually broadcast the therapy, right, to everyone. That's true. Like that's they might have done that and they don't tell everyone. Um that is a general though that idea of sort of therapy as a thing you do to fix a problem and then you, you know get in there, get out of there after like six sessions or something is much more of a modern trend in therapy. When I was researching this, um that is the way that people are beginning to look at therapy and see it. So that's say, like, this generation of, say, you know, millennials that want to do couples therapy before they're married, they're also used to the idea that I was having an emotional problem after, like, a difficult moment in my life. I saw a therapist for five sessions. We came up with some solutions. She gave me advice about, you know, behavioral things I could do to make my life a little easier. Then I had all these, you know, tools and I was fine without it. And, like, you know, some people said they went to the therapist. The therapist was able to, you know, they they repeat, they go over their patterns and they realize, oh, my God, the therapist said, sounds like every time you have a giant fight is at night. Why don't you guys just remember that don't start the relationship talk after dark? 
you know, and sometimes it takes a neutral person to sort of help you pick out those patterns. And so that is the way most of the therapists looked at it. They said that when you have a problem, if you're at an impasse where you can't get past it, you go see a therapist for, you know, a few sessions till you figure it out. And then you go right back to your normal relationship. Right. You acquire the tools, you're given mm-hmm. the tools, and then you use the tools. But when you're a new couple, yeah. what are you going in and saying? Like, you don't technically don't, well, hopefully you don't have problems yet. So you can <laughs> yeah. sit there and say, we're really happy, but we're we're thinking of the storms to come. So let's have all these theoretical issues laid I think out it's on when the table. they doesn't that seem damaging it does i mean i think it's usually when they start to notice something that like this is becoming a problem like i can sense that this isn't working we aren't at a crisis point i haven't cheated on you yet but i'm noticing <laughs> that i'm you know feeling alienated from you and needing somebody else's attention we're only you know a few months in maybe we can fix this now i think if anything the bigger the problem to me is more that couples therapy is almost too effective in some ways such that people you might be in a relationship where you should just end it but instead you find a way to make yourselves as compatible as possible and like there's something to be said for having a blow up and storming out because sometimes you just need that to happen so you can move on and get to somewhere else, someone else. Well, especially with a lot of the people that you were talking about who are quite young. Yeah, like, just a few you know, months in. It's like one thing if you've got a couple young kids and you're yeah. like, well, maybe we should make this work. But it's another thing if you're 24 and you've been dating for three months. And yeah. You're like, um, <laughs> How do we make this this new, brand new thing work when there's so much other... When we're obviously so miserable. Right, like, so yeah. Early. Like, you're 24. It's so early to be miserable. And then know. pay for being miserable. They're paid to be more miserable in well, a session. Well, one person um, pointed out who did therapy when they were, I believe, 21 and 23. Um, he was like, well, we looked into it. And according to our, like, our insurance copay was only 30 bucks, yeah. which is less than a date. <laughs> um, we'd already moved in together. Common problem in New York. They moved in kind of early. Breaking up was like this big old thing. They had all these issues. And he's like, why don't we just do a $30 copay? Although that couple ended up breaking up. And both of them were very much like, that was beating a dead horse afterwards. I think the bigger problem from them was like, they probably would have been better off with a financial help of somebody telling them how they could break up with each other and not all go broke. I that was a total Band-Aid situation, right? Investing right. the $30 a week instead of saving up the money so they could just like afford a new lease and get away from each other. I also kind of feel like it's like a new dating anxiety in a way, right. like the couples therapy, because you're, again, making the choice that it's, it's just like a relationship that you want to be in long mm-hmm. enough that the couples therapy will pay off. So you're asking someone, babe, should we yeah. go to couples therapy? It's the new like, babe, are we ready to move in together? Or like, mm-hmm. babe, when can I meet your parents? Like, it just seems like another layer of yeah. determining wh- how serious your relationship is. I don't know if that makes sense. No, and I do think um, there's something so sort of, I think my initial distaste was so, I sort of have this strange distaste for things that feel like too much communication in some way of that that sort of phenomenon of like, you're just talking about your problem instead of saying, is this an, a problem that makes it end? Or are we actually going to fix this problem? Or are we just going to sit around talking about it forever? Which I think gave me so much distaste. But then, I don't know. I think when I talked to more people that had had positive experiences, and I thought it's sort of, you know, like I could be going around asking my girlfriends for advice all the time and they're never going to be a neutral third party. You know, <laughs> I would hope they're not a neutral not third party. Helpful. They're supposed to be on my side, you know. And there was something to me that made sense. Or even people like, um, I talked to one couple that they had, or I heard a story about one couple that had been dating since they were like tweens. And I think there's a strange moment in our sort of youth sexual culture in particular where we're simultaneously putting off commitment that marriage happens later and later and yet becoming very sort of quasi committed really young you know that you 
sort of openly start living with someone when you're like 19 years old and in college or something. And so you can end up in these states where it's not the commitment of your life, but it is a commitment. A serious is, commitment, like years and years, yeah. but you're still 25 or whatever. Yeah, yeah, that you could have, you know, been seeing each other for a really long time. And that still affects your emotional life and your life really severely, even if you don't think that that's the person who you're going to have children with 20 years later. Um, yeah, some of the generational stuff you were talking about was the most interesting to me. Like you mentioned that when you were in middle school, you had like a what it was like a course called conflict resolution or whatever. <laughs> yeah, conflict like, resolution. You could you could put your name on the conflict resolution list at the guidance counselor, and it's like a fun activity for like you and your friends if you were like having a fight or a disagreement. That, that you seems go, so midwestern. You go by the way. sign up <laughs> to have like so earnest, a like. grown up help you figure. And I actually the phrase conflict resolution it didn't occur to me that that wasn't like a branded program or like something. Right. That that was actually just like a description of a thing people do until like very much later in life. But people of our generation and younger are just growing up like way more comfortable with therapy in general. I think it's um, and I go I really go back and forth on whether it's sort of like a, a wimpy millennial, you know, self-indulgent fixation. Um, and it was kind of funny because though I think there's a lot less stigma about therapy in general, there was this crazy stigma about couples therapy because people were really ashamed to feel like they were being so self-indulgent and they just go talk to themselves and they throw their money away. And that felt very shameful to a lot of people. Well, also probably like a lot of people felt it was admitting some kind of failure, that there was something broken in their relationship. Um, But then on the other hand, I think people are also just more honest about their struggles in a certain way. And if you if you're able to be honest of like, I'm this is hurting me or this is something that matters to me and it's difficult to me and I want to deal with it. um, That doesn't always necessarily. It's strange that we sort of hate that so much. People admitting their sort of weaknesses and where they need help. Allison, do you think it's wimpier? Oh, no, I'm a big believer in therapy. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but I, I but I do understand that, like, sometimes admitting that you need to ask for help, it's the the failure of it that is kind of the biggest obstacle, mm-hmm. especially in a relationship. Or I, I read about friends who go to couples therapy just right. to, like, work on their friendship. And, or, uh, there Wait, was, really? Yeah. I read, and the therapist <laughs> mentioned that, too. Yeah, the, like, really good friends want to make sure their friendship lasts and they fight too much. They go to a couple's therapist so too. Crazy. But then there was the New York Times piece about uh, the genius founders and they, mm-hmm. that's like a new Valley or Silicon Valley trend. Like yeah. co-founders going to couples therapy to mediate their problems before they tear their companies Just apart. To deal with you their, know? the way their relationship, the way they communicate, that kind of thing. Right. So I think there is like much more acceptance now. Um, and even if it's kind of, it's almost like this pro- being proactive about it is like, pre-failing so like you're not ever really gonna fail because you've already proactively prevented the failure so don't feel safer i do wonder if there is just some intense fear of failure at the heart of this that we need to say like we did everything we could like i can't bear to not win or you know that like this was completely irreconcilable because we we brought in a professional who agreed with us (laughs) There is something crazy when I think, though, that, like, you would never blink if somebody said, I go to my therapist once a week, and every single week I spend an hour and all my money so I can talk about my boyfriend every single week. It's more like the 50 minute, minutes. The minute, <laughs> <laughs> and yet the minute she says, my boyfriend and I went together, you're like, what Ooh, are you doing? Flag. Yeah. Why is that? That's a good point. Um, it also makes me think that sometimes people go into these situations in order to win. Like, right. they're basically oh, yeah. having an argument, and they want some judge to be like, no, Maureen, you're wrong, or like, no, Maureen, you're right. That's you know? like Judge Judy. Yeah. Well, as, as my friend Stephanie, the one who did the nine months of therapy, pointed out, that she was like, we went there every week to this therapist, and 
it was always like he was making his case and then I would make my case. And then all of a sudden she realized if we're making our cases separately, we're not a team. And the whole point of this is to be a team. We're never going to get there if, if we're looking at it as we want the therapist to say who won every time. Yeah. So how much of these sessions are about sex? Interesting. One therapist pointed out to me that she was saying that she wanted the couple to talk about sex and she, you know, talks to them and she says, "Okay, I can tell you can't talk to me, but here's your homework. You must talk about sex this week. And so whether they literally talk about it with her or whether, I mean, it sort of is a thing that she can tell is a problem with them and she what she's doing is sort of just moderating to make sure that they're like something's here. You need to communicate this or that like does it improve. Um, So I think that the therapists don't always literally get into it in terms of people's sex lives. But it does seem like that's very frequently a problem. Yeah. I would imagine. That's probably the hardest thing to talk about without like Or a... sometimes the sex is, you know, the indicator of some other problem. And that's, you know, no, what, what you're picking apart. My therapist has said, uh, like, when you're not having sex, that's like the first sign of uh, trouble. So it's the lack of sex that is the warning sign. Well, I think it, it varies for people, right? That some people are having trouble with the sex itself and that is animating other problems they're having in their lives. For other people, it's that maybe they don't love each other anymore, then the sex becomes the the symptom of their their disconnection. I think it can go both ways, I would imagine, at least. That's what it sounded like. But none of these therapists are, like, sending their couples into the sex box to do some therapy. <laughs> they were not. They um, I did consider whether to include sex therapists in this article, which I did not. That will be a whole nother exploration. Which you've already embarked on your research for. Uh, yeah, I did talk to some of them, actually. People get sex therapy when they're not married as well sometimes. Ooh. Oh, we've got so much one. more to talk about, guys. <laughs> so we've been talking about couples therapy, which um, Maureen just wrote a fantastic column about in the magazine, which you can also find on The Cut. And now let's move on to our second subject, which is um, the eggplant emoji. We've actually been, the three of us, been talking and emailing about this for a while. I think Allison in particular is, like, obsessed with the eggplant emoji. Um, <laughs> but a couple of weeks ago, um, this group called SwiftKey, or maybe it's an app, I actually don't know, did a massive study of emoji use and discovered, among a lot of other things, that Americans use the eggplant more than anyone else. Um, so I guess the first thing I wanted to ask was whether people use an eggplant for anything other than a dick. No. <laughs> I mean, Who has ever been like, what are you making for dinner tonight? And it happened to be eggplant. Right? I think once someone was like, no, I've used it to list the ingredients in ratatouille. I'm like, okay, you're just right. you're just being difficult now. <laughs> Man, I, I mean, I don't eat eggplant, but now I want to just so I can send the emoji to someone and be like, I'm eating a psych, you dirty person. <laughs> eat some ratatouille. But I think at this point, it's universal shorthand for, the, for that D, for the dick. I think so. I think so. And yeah. is this like a hot shorthand? Like, if you see... No, it's pretty goofy, I'd say. I think it's pretty accurate, though, of all the options you have available to you on the emojis. Well, define accurate, Allison. (laughs) Okay, we have to remember that they're using the Japanese eggplant, so it's longer and thinner, not like the round, very curvy, (laughs) (laughs) bottom-heavy eggplant that we see in our grocery stores in the U.S. So the Japanese Japanese eggplant, eggplant, I feel, is a pretty uh, endowed vegetable. Eh, you know, I mean, <laughs> what would you rather than send a baby carrot? I don't understand. Well, I think the banana is like the classic, right? That's like, you yeah, know. I guess it's bef- I, I blend that on sex ed, right? Because right. that's kind of the fruit you use the to fruit learn that how you to put the condom on, apply the condom, yeah. Or so you imagined it. Anyone sex ed actually do that? Ours did not. That's just like from Never Been Kissed is my only. I know. Do you have like a proper dildo to put it on there? No, I don't think you they demonstrated did, yeah. that in our you sex ed. You figured that out on your own. I don't know. 
poverty of Midwestern public schools <laughs> and Baltimore ones, I suppose. But uh, the I think I'm trying to think of other of other emojis that can be used for the dick. Uh, someone once said the nose is actually the most oh, accurate. That, I I was 100 percent on the nose because the nose it's like the oh, long. The I mean, it's weird because it would be a dick sort of disappearing into the distance with almost like like a like a vanishing point because it's the two nostrils at the bottom which look like balls and then this like um shaft of like the bridge of the nose and then just sort of disappears at the top so there's no head to that but dick. you can imagine it's exactly going somewhere so i remember i was using that for a long time for the longest time everybody thought i was making like cocaine references or do you have a cold marine are you okay you keep sending the nose with like the drops next to it like are you sneezing i was like Gross. Being sexy, <laughs> but that's the thing. The, uh, it's all gross. The, it's all no, gross and goofy. because the eggplant at least gives like a little bit of innuendo, right? It's like a right. little bit coy. Where it's the not nose, disgusting. it's like a flesh-toned thing. <laughs> it's like you're really just throwing it out there. You yeah, know, I know. The eggplant, you have a little bit of wink and a nod with. The you're usage. right. It's, it's got the right level of of sort of jokiness to it. But the thing that I always think of, we were talking about this before, the thing that I always think of when I hear about the eggplant is like I think about cauliflower ear. It just seems so <laughs> like gross and ugly. I know I couldn't imagine ever. It's all it. pretty gross. There, There's something like... You're um, about dicks or about emojis? <laughs> <laughs> all genitalia. <laughs> Disgusting. No, you know, I do find um, food-related euphemisms for sex and genitals to be very yucky. Yeah. I don't. What else is on that list for you? Like, um, oh my God, the terrors of I think once somebody was making just like just like a sex joke, and they sent the like um, the like sushi emoji yeah, to sorry. signify <laughs> a vagina. I was like deeply upset. Yeah, I definitely. Used I mean, that one. I was deeply <laughs> upset by that. I think, oh, you know, every now and then you'll see people do like the pointer finger and the like okay finger as though like you're going to put like the pointer finger in the hole right in the way that you might make an innuendo that. But um, as far as emoji use, it's almost a little rude because it seems so like. It's so vulgar. Yeah. You know? it's, it's They're so... all kind of vulgar. Not the eggplant. The, the eggplant, eggplant is cute graceful, and silly. You know? And it's like it's green and purple, which are just like silly colors. Also, it's so widely accepted now that even if, when, like you said, when you try to use something else, it's kind of confusing. People don't quite understand what you're sexting to them. Or, but Allison, weren't you saying that there there is a movement towards the sausage as the new? Yes. So the kids on Vine, I just had about eighty saying this, um, but there's this new thing, this new meme where kids will yell out. Uh, Everybody go sausage, and they start making up these little raps about sausage. Like, what do you say? I got the sausage, or I'm a vegetarian, but I still eat sausage. So they're using sausage uh, as a euphemism for dick, which is not that creative. But there's Vine videos all over the place of teens unleashing this sausage. this sausage rap. Although one of the incredible things about the eggplant story is that it happened organically, so to speak. That like there wasn't any Organic there wasn't eggplant. any campaign. You know, that's true. It just happened. Because it looked like it. I mean, although, as as one man once said to me, the great tragedy of our generation is that the eggplant emoji and the three drops of cum emoji face the wrong direction. I know. So you can't line them up quite right. (laughs) Three drops of cum emoji being, it's, who knows what those three drops are supposed to be, but they're only cum. So we've been talking about um, mankind's greatest creation, the eggplant emoji. Now let's move on to our um, final subject, which is air sex. I know actually very little about this, but Allison is like a super expert. Um, <laughs> meaning, <laughs> sure. <laughs> meaning, I get she's she's been to one 
competition where people performed air sex acts. And so for listeners who don't know what that is, it's basically like air guitar where you get up on stage and pretend to be having sex. But I guess there's some other rules too, right? Well, there's only two rules to air sex, which is (laughs) only two rules. One, uh, simulated orgasms only. No, you know, blowing actual loads on stage. It's not allowed. And two, uh, you have to be pantomiming sex with either uh, another person or an an object, if that's what you choose. What Um, what else? So you can't, like, no no pantomiming masturbation, for example. Like, it has to be sex between two two peeps could it be multiple peeps sure yeah if you if you want to take on that kind of like spatial reasoning and be like go ahead <laughs> that's some real virtuoso pantomime material think, yeah and this was the subject of a piece that uh taffy Brodesser Ackner wrote um which you want to talk a little bit about it yeah so um i actually this is for gq and i i went to a air sex competition. I think it was just a small regional competition. Um, <laughs> a when qualifier. I, <laughs> qualifying small round. Small time. When I was in San Francisco, uh, like 2008 or nine, And I remember thinking it was like the saddest, weirdest thing I'd ever gone to. Like some kind of weird theater exercise gone wrong. You know, when you're like <laughs> in middle school drama and they ask you to envision <laughs> holding the glass and drinking water from the glass and maintaining the shape. Like that's Are what... not all thespians there to air sex? <laughs> In front We're of all everyone. just going to learn how to air sex I... consistently and with <laughs> continuity. Um, but when Taffy wrote about it, it was like, I feel like in the over the past past decade since it's been in the states, it's really evolved to quite an art form. Ah. There, like there are, and the, at least in the main competition in Austin the, for the finals, there are like gimmicks. People are coming up with these crazy scenarios. They're using music. Like some guy, I think one of the most popular, had a whole beautiful sex ballet to Miley Cyrus's Wrecking Ball that like really got in touch with his insecurities. And then he finally like (laughs) And everybody was like weeping at the end. They went wild. And then the the winner um, that Taffy wrote about was actually a man who just pantomimed sex when you're married and have a baby so like he had a fake baby and he put the fake baby down and then he pantomimed like really rushed quiet sex with his tired wife and, mm-hmm. and that that one i guess I for see. how realistic it was, was. you would have voted for the miley cyrus i think it would have yeah please it's way more creative and i hear he had confetti sprinkle at the end for some oh symbolic <laughs> so are, the, are these all men or is it, do women women do it too um i, I feel like men seem to excel a little bit more at it, which I don't quite understand. Um, I guess, I guess any it's unknown there? if, if there's, if, uh, are there more competitors? Is this the boys club of air sex? <laughs> it might be a boys club. Well, if you think about air guitar, I think that's also dominated yeah. by dudes. I didn't even realize that air guitar was like a genre that there were competitions of until I read this. And then everybody was like, it's just like the air guitar championships. <laughs> right. You haven't been Where going to I those been competitions. Where have I been that all the like invisible activities of the world? But you know what? I you bring up air guitar, and I was thinking about the faces people make during air guitar, and they're probably pretty similar, right? <laughs> well, you know, <laughs> every time air you see sex a faces. dude air guitaring, it's like he's air masturbating, really. <laughs> so it's really just a natural progression for it air kind competition. Of is, I have to say, but that's the one thing I didn't like about being at an air sex competition was. Um, like being forced to stare at someone's O face. I don't know like how close it is to their actual like yeah. intimate face, but it's really kind of like disconcerting to watch person <laughs> after person like make that that face that only few people see in a lifetime. I know, and right you now know? we're all sitting here making faces of disgust <laughs> in sim- simultaneously. Do you have the same problem when you're watching a movie and you see actors like faking orgasms? Sometimes, like uh, 
there was James Vanderbeek and so, I can't oh, remember gosh. what movie the rules of attraction <laughs> right that that yeah the rules of attraction he made had a scene where he had to make an O face that I will haunt me forever <laughs> it was so horrifying and um, perhaps very realistic I don't know but I mean that's like a pretty was this like a drama or a comedy uh, it was based off that Brett Easton Ellis novel so I guess oh. like somewhere in between. As soon as you said James Vanderbeek, I like my brain flashed to that like Vanderbeek crying meme. Oh yeah, that was in from yeah. Dawson's Creek. So it's um, not dissimilar actually <laughs> to his O face in this movie. He cries every time. <laughs> he just weeps every <laughs> single time. Or at least makes a pained face as he will. Um oh, God. But you know, so the more I think about it, I'm I'm actually like I admire these air sex people because mm-hmm. they're creative and like totally shameless. Living out there. Because how hard must it be to get up there and like pantomime sex and also to keep it realistic right because right. you can't just move where someone's body part is once you've that's the first rule of theater right you've established yeah. that this is like the physical space in which you will perform and like you can't shift it around like you have to be con- well unless the person you're having sex with moves right but even then it's like you got to make sure you're maintaining and i think it's a real art form it's really more like miming than like air guitar <laughs> i have to say i feel like okay harder or easier to pantomime sex on a stage or just have sex on a stage because at least if you're just having sex i mean you're presumably i don't know the level of like somehow the focus it would take to act that out like i feel like the awareness of your humiliation and stuff like at least you're distracted if you're actually having sex with someone right it's like way less to think about. i think you would be very very aware of what your o face looks like if you were not in fact having an o while making a pretend o face I would definitely try and correct my face. <laughs> this would be your your my, your better my your my, my idol. idol of orgasm faces. <laughs> I, I look this sexy naturally when I'm doing this, <laughs> but these people do not. I watch some YouTube videos and mm-hmm. they just go for broke as like ugly and weird and demented as people must look when you're having sex. That's like the other funny thing, right? Like you can believe that you look really good while you're having sex and that movement's like thrusting and like <laughs> like that looks great to someone but like if you ever stop to watch yourself have sex you probably oh the like, terrors of like, like, horrified by it well, especially if you took the circuit like the rest of the room and the other person out of it so, right. yeah, yeah be, oh gosh <laughs> so like but you have to give him a hand for uh just confronting those those dark demons yeah i think even i've always thought the great divide in levels of sexual narcissism is whether or not people think a mirror is a really hot thing to have near you while you're fucking. And where do you stand on that issue? I, I stand on, oh, I don't know if I, I like seeing the way I look from that angle. <laughs> <laughs> do you think porn stars even think they look good when they're having sex? I mean, you must if you're doing it professionally. I suppose. But if you're watching imagine. yourself on tape later, are you always I don't know, like, maybe they don't watch themselves. Like, game tape kind of? I don't really they know. Must. Yeah, I sure if you. Well, every now and then you hear job. about the actor that's like, I can't watch myself in my movie, and you're like, bullshit! You watched your movie. Come on. Well, have you listened to this podcast? Absolutely not. No. <laughs> <laughs> I have. I just yeah. listened to it again and again while I'm over over yeah. No, oh, I that not that. weird, Maureen. Come on. Sorry. And uh, that's it. That's our third subject, and um, we're out. So our producer is Henry Malofsky, and thanks also to Laura Mayer and Andy Bowers at Panoply. For Allison Davis and Maureen O'Connor, I'm David Wallace-Wells. We'll talk to you next time, and thanks for listening.